listening to Ouija Broads. This is Devin, and depending on how much you like me, today's either a very special or a very frustrating episode for you, because unfortunately I'm not joined by Liz today. But I don't want you to go without us for the week. My goodness, what a tragic start to your week that would be to not listen to me. So I would like to talk to you about something that I really love about what we do. And Of course, I think the ghosts are fascinating. Liz is fantastic when it comes to doing the really deep research into actual people that lived. I love the treasure stories, but I think you probably know that one of my favorite things to talk about are cryptids. We've talked about cryptids before when we talk about Shunkawarakan, when we talk about Bigfoot, when we talk about the Thunderbirds uh, around Mount St. Helens and down the whole West Coast. Again, cryptids are an animal for which there's no real scientific evidence that it exists. It can be a creature that borders on mythological, but it's distinct from a mythological creature like a dragon or a unicorn and that there aren't really a group of prominent folks that are in the world right now saying, yes, unicorns exist. But there's that group of people saying, fuck, dude, Sasquatch are a real thing. I understand why it's confusing. I'm sometimes confused on whether or not something's considered a cryptid. But Bigfoot, without a doubt, is a cryptid. Certainly one of the most recognizable in America, perhaps even the world. In other parts of the country and world, Sasquatch might go by a different name. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the Yeti in the Himalayas, which is also kind of the abominable snowman, right? We have other creatures in North America that are Sasquatch-like, but regionally go by different names. And here I'm thinking specifically uh, skunk apes in Florida swamps or in that whole Gulf area, those swamps. They're supposedly a type of Sasquatch that lives down there. And that one of its distinctive features is an absolutely ungodly stench. I can't imagine that any ape living in the forest smells great, but this one is supposed to be particularly noxious. I don't have Liz here to make me sound smarter than I am. So what I am going to do is use somebody else's words to share with you some stories about Sasquatch. When I went to the International Cryptozoology Conference in 2017, um, I was able to listen to a talk by Linda Godfrey, who's a really well-known cryptozoologist in the field. Mostly Linda focuses on dogmen sightings, which I think you should go look up for yourself. I'm not going to explain it as well as she would, certainly. But they're kind of like the canine version of a Bigfoot, particularly around the Great Lakes. Apparently, there are a ton of sightings that Linda gets from people who see this kind of like dog-human hybrid type creature. Sounds terrifying. I think I'll stick to our giant monkey people over on the Pacific Northwest coast. But even though she's known for that, she, of course, collects stories of all kinds of cryptids. And her most recent book, American Monsters, is a really fantastic overview of different kinds of cryptids. So you've got, you know, sea serpents, you have mammals, you have flying cryptids, whether or not they're avian. You know, you have uh, pterodactyls and mothmen, which are humanoid. Uh, She even gets a little bit into like Jersey Devil kind of stuff. The Jersey Devil uh, origin story is more demonic in nature. So it would be a a demon, an elemental, uh, something I don't know enough about to really talk comprehensively on but is kind of, again, lumped in with cryptozoology because it is a pretty nebulous field. Anyway, her book's fantastic. I highly recommend it. 
I was able to talk to her a little bit after her panel and she signed my book. She's just a wonderful woman. And if you have any personal encounters, her website is a great way to share those with her so she can add them not only to her research, but future books. If you have something to share with Linda, you want to go to http colon slash slash lindagodfrey.com. I would like to share with you part of Linda's book, American Monsters, that specifically talk about Sasquatch. I'm going to read directly from her book to you. If this is not what you want to listen to today, me reading See you next week. But for those of you who want to stick around, I would like to talk to you about Linda's 23rd chapter in this book called Watch for Sasquatch. I'd like to read to you the parts of her book that deal with Sasquatch on the Pacific Northwest. She has quite a few encounters listed in here that are from other parts of the country. But since we're a Pacific Northwest podcast, let's start here. American Monsters, A History of Monsters, Lore, Legends, and Sightings in America by Linda S. Godfrey. Chapter 23, Watch for the Sasquatch. If nine-foot-tall humanoid primates are truly natural animals indigenous to North America, it's unthinkable that they would have gone unnoticed by many Native American peoples who have lived in intimate harmony with this land for millennia. The fact that there are plenty of Native names for such creatures in Native lore far beyond North America, most cultures in other parts of the globe, also have ancient legends about hairy man-monsters often endowed with supernatural powers or amazing strength. Sometimes they're feared as man-eaters, and in other circumstances is merely left alone as much as possible. Occasionally, these hairy ones have a place in tribal cultural stories as heroes. In Native American lore, they are often commanded as special respect and are thought of as a different kind of people, rather than as animals. You may have heard my cat just meow right then and scared the shit out of me. Wonderful. Here I'm going to skip a few of her subsections because they deal with Midwest and East Coast. The Matlog. Consider another early account. (laughs) Another because I have just skipped several sections that aren't Pacific Northwest, but we'll continue. Consider another early account of some larger unknown primates. This time in the Pacific Northwest is told to Spanish explorers in 1792 by inhabitants of what is present-day Oregon and Washington. Bilingual author Scott Corrales translated the original Spanish journal notation found in a document called Noticias de Nutca, or News from the Nutca, written by a naturalist commissioned to study and record the people, flora, and fauna of the coastal region. The naturalist never personally witnessed the creature that the indigenous people called the matlog, but noted that just speaking of it filled local inhabitants with unspeakable dread. It was certainly very real to them. The matlog was of giant size with black, bristly fur and a head like a human's, only bigger. Well, that description sounds consistent with today's usual notion of Bigfoot, as does the writer's additional mention of its very long arms. The passage also details, however, long, curved claws fangs larger than those of a bear, and screams loud enough to knock people off their feet. The modern Bigfoot is usually said to have blunt nails, teeth more suited to an omnivore's diet, and screams that might hurt eardrums, but usually don't blast people to the ground, although I've heard of anecdotal exceptions. Those features sound a bit over the top, but they don't mean that the creature did not exist. Mythical elements in indigenous narrative are very familiar to contemporary researchers who might take those fearsome fangs, claws, and howls as examples of the normal exaggeration that occurs in the retelling of a story. Besides, we know today, centuries after the Spanish naturalist's scientific journey, that the Pacific Northwest carries a reputation as one of the most active areas on Earth for reports of Sasquatch sightings and activity. 
Represent PNW. This implies a healthy population of the creatures and a healthy population of any animal are not built overnight. So what happened to the matlog? Since most of the sightings in the Pacific Northwest states are the type Sanderson would have called the giant variety, perhaps they are still there, but known by a different name. I'll break in here. Uh, Sanderson's another naturalist or cryptozoologist who has broken down Sasquatch sightings into types. A lot of the types are giant. So that's what we think of when we think of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, Abominable Snowman. They're larger than human size, hairy hominid creatures. There are reports of smaller than average human size creatures. One example is the uh, Chicharini, I believe. They're uh, native peoples in the island of the Bahamas, in an island of the Bahamas, rather. That's a, a small, hairy hominid. It's like a Bigfoot, but small. The well-known term for these creatures, Sasquatch, was derived from similar indigenous words or phrases recorded by a teacher named J.W. Burns, who worked on the Chehalis Indian Reservation in British Columbia in the 1920s. Burns is well-known for his article titled Introducing B.C.'s Hairy Giants, which he wrote for the April 1st, 1929 McLean's Magazine. And no, the story was not intended as an April Fool's joke. In fact, wrote Marion T. Place in the On the Track for Bigfoot, Burns was credited with noting the various Indian names, Susquatong, Susquietl, Semisokwiam, Susquetl, and others, and coining the English version, Sasquatch, by which the creature has been known to white Canadians ever since. Burns' article included several anecdotes that suggested the creatures had been in those parts for some time. One elderly woman told him that one of these wild men of the woods, as her people called them, had taken her from her family as a child and kept her prisoner in a rock shelter with its own clan for an entire year before returning her. A second, much more informative anecdote came from a lumberman, Mike King, in 1901. King was working on Vancouver Island when he found his timber plan stymied because of the indigenous people he hired to work there were too afraid of Sasquatch to get the logging done. King set out to prove that the creature was nothing more than a bear. Instead, he spotted a Sasquatch busily rinsing some type of root in a creek and then arranging them neatly in stacks. When King shouted at the creature, it jumped up and ran into the forest on two legs, displaying long arms and a natural, loping, bipedal gait, very unlike the gait of a shorter-legged bear. As confirmation, King spied very large but human-looking footprints in the mud near where it had been working with the roots. King had to eat a large helping of crow and then agreed with his unsurprised workers that they had better leave the area alone. Another tale from those days before Bigfoot became famous was that of the Mount St. Helens apes in 1924. A reporter for the Longview Times in Washington told of a man who told wardens at the Spirit Lake Ranger Station that he had shot the mountain devil. The man was one of a group of miners who said that they had encountered four seven-foot-tall, 400-pound, erect-walking creatures and that the body of one he had shot toppled over a cliff. Linda notes, very convenient disposal, I feel bound to note. And I would agree with her. Liz and I have talked extensively in another episode about this group of miners and their supposed encounter with Bigfoots and how I think she and I are both rather skeptical of their claims. Something or someone attacked their cabin with rocks that night, scaring the group down off the mountain and in the belief it was the creatures taking revenge for the death of their friend. Like many of these old tales, it's hard to separate legend from real events. 
Others later came forward and claimed to have hoaxed the prince and the hail of rocks. Liz and I talked about this being perhaps a Boy Scout troop that thought it might have been them. However, I have to wonder where the idea to do these particular things originated. How would anyone know about big footprints or the alleged fondness Sasquatches have for chucking rocks at people in buildings unless someone, somewhere, had first observed these things? Sometimes, where there's a lot of smoke, there only need be a lick of fire. Washington Wildling The heavily forested state of Washington, together with Northern California, has long been considered Bigfoot Central and is still a leading provider of encounter reports. As Yakima area reporter Scott Sanbury said in the 2012 Sports Yakima Online article, it would take a shelf of books to chronicle the recollections of the thousands of people who are convinced that they've had a personal encounter with Bigfoot. He then offered several of his top picks from around Yakima. Interesting, they all involved eyewitnesses with guns, some of which were fired at the creatures with similar results to the Invincible Dogman incidents discussed earlier, which you don't know because you're not reading the book. But basically, it means that when people shoot at Bigfoot, they either seem impervious to bullets or the bullets don't hit them as though there's some kind of supernatural aura, which is partially what makes some people think that, oh yeah, Bigfoot is an interdimensional astral being, which we've said before, don't answer a question with another question. With the new Google Glass computer mounted on eyeglass frames, and plans by researchers to glide silently over florists in blimps, perhaps that long-awaited proof is just around a riverbend. As for me, I've witnessed a few things myself that tell me there is something to these and other creatures. But in the next chapter, I will go to this place of personal revelation that so many researchers fear to tread. And that's why you gotta buy the book, I guess, because I'm not going to read chapter 24, Author Encounters to You. If you want me to be totally honest, I'm I believe in Bigfoot because I want to believe in Bigfoot. I really want there to be something else out there. Um, when I think of what's what cryptid, I would really like to conclusively know whether or not they exist. If I'm not going to go with thylacines, my top one, I'm going to go with Sasquatch because I feel it's such a widespread, prevalent kind of touchstone cryptid for a lot of people. But I almost don't ever want to know conclusively because I think what's most likely is that it's not real. And I would, I know that scientifically I should want to know one way or the other and that I should be okay. I shouldn't be looking at this with preconceived ideas of, of what I want the experiment to yield, right? But if it isn't real, I don't want to know. I think it's so much more fun to not know. I think it's so much more fun to believe, really. Not not know, but to believe. Thank you so much for listening to me read excerpts from Linda Godfrey's American Monsters to you. I have to say that this certainly wasn't something that Linda Godfrey asked me to do. She doesn't know I'm doing this. She doesn't know me from Adam. She was just kind enough to talk to me a year ago and signed my book. But I hope that you enjoyed it. I think if you're interested in cryptozoology, this is definitely a book worth checking out for you. It's a really good overview. And like I said, it breaks it down into some really manageable identification types. But we hope you join us again next week when it is a we and not just I. And in the meantime, you can get the show notes and some more substantial research information from us on OuijaBroads.com. Of course, you can talk to us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then we have iTunes and Podbean where you can rate, review, and subscribe while you listen. So that allows other folks to find us. 
Uh, it feels really weird doing all this by myself, but I, on behalf of Liz, want you to live weird, die weird, and stay weird. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.